This week on Hacker and the Fed, your light bulbs may be giving away the location of your house. Could Microsoft end ransomware right now? Voice authentication may be broken. The latest ransomware attack shows us the importance of logistics security. Convenience has once again jeopardized Google Authenticator security. And our listeners answer our questions about Australian law enforcement. Hector Monsegur was responsible for some of the most notorious hacks Former ever Former FBI Special Agent Chris Tarbell. Hacker turned FBI informant. Participated in some of the world's most infamous hacks. It caused up to $50 million in damages. A life in the shadows. Cyber attacks on the rise. Welcome to Hacker in the Fed. I'm Chris Tarbo, former FBI special agent, working my entire career in cybersecurity, and now founding partner in Naxo. I'm joined, as always, by Hector Monsecure, who's my friend and podcast co-host. Hector's a former black hat hacker who once faced 125 years in prison for as many years of hacking under the code name Sabu. Our stories collided in June of 2011 when I arrested him and convinced him to work with me at the FBI. Hector is now a red teamer, researcher, cybersecurity expert, and one of my closest friends. Hector, how's it going? Oh, man, it's going great. That was a hell of an intro. Thank you. I, I know I hear the intro all the time, but this one was special. I put a little emphasis here and there. <laughs> Try to add it all up, a little spice it up. Hey, I, I listen, I appreciate it, brother. I do. But yeah, no, it's, it's been good on my end. It's been a busy week, super busy. How about yourself? How's everything in Naxo? It's good. Naxo's doing good. We got a lot of big work coming in. Um, mm. We're uh, we think we're going to hire some people, so we're interviewing a lot of good people. So uh, it's good. Wow, that's awesome, man. That's good to hear. Yeah. You know, when when you reach a point where you're hiring, that that's that really showcases growth. And I'm super excited for you guys. The one thing I'll tell you is that if you guys have space, man, we got to have like at least a room dedicated so we can record some visual podcast episodes. People don't want to see us. Come on, bro. You want to see your, 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 your beautiful mug, you know? Well, we got faces for radio. <laughs> that's true. That's true. You know that. You know, I got, I got to borrow a joke from Ronnie Danielfield. Go. And that is that, yeah, when I was born, uh, the doctor slapped my mother. <laughs> <laughs> that's not true. No, nah, no. Nah. Where were you born? I was born in, actually, in Beth Israel Hospital here in New York City. Oh, nice. Nice. Yeah, yeah. And, and as soon as I was born, I was here for a little bit, and then my family went back to Puerto Rico and I was raised on the island for uh for a few years until I was, you know, at 9 I think, 9 or 10. Puerto Rico is the good life, friend. You got to get down there again. Yeah, I know. I'm trying to. I'll be honest with you and this this is between you, me and the audience. I'm trying to go back to PR um and just like just just chill. It was a very chill lifestyle. It was very like laid back. I really screwed up. The Hector and I once did an uh, an event, a corporate event down there. Um, right. and my wife came with us and we were down in Puerto Rico, uh, and I did not take advantage of having Hector with me and just go out and get some fungo and just drive around and see Puerto Rico some more. I think I, as soon as the event was over, I jumped on a plane and headed out <laughs> to Arizona, but I should have canceled that next event and just gone and hung out with you in Puerto Rico for a few days. I'll tell you an interesting Puerto Rico story. I, so I was down there once for a case for 10 days. Great place to, to do some FBI work down there. But we went down and it was a group that wanted to, you know, break away from the United States. And they had done some some domestic terrorism stuff and that sort of thing. So we went in for, for an arrest. Um, 
And like it was one of those things. There were so many agents down there that we were hiding out on a military base, so it wouldn't give away. We had to fly in, you know, different times and all that. Went and did this search warrant this one place, and a group formed while we were inside the compound outside. And we were driving out through the through to in a convoy to get out of there. And uh, somebody uh, threw a cinder block through my windshield. So I had to go to the rental car place and I had to buy the rental car with my credit card no. because uh, it was now a evidence for a, uh, a federal crime. Wow. So that was always fun to go to the, go to the place and be like, yeah, you're not getting your card car back. Uh, here's my credit card. Let's, uh, let's see what we can do. So yeah. it was, wow, look at that. So it was a good time, but they did tell us that if after nine o'clock, um, you're talking about dangerous places, but after nine o'clock, it's it was safer to run the red light than to stop and sit at a red light. So, oh yeah, especially when so for folks for folks that are familiar with uh, ghettos or projects here in the United States, and I'm sure you have your own in your own countries. In Puerto Rico, they have what they call caserillos. So when you go to a caserillo, it's kind of like going into like a like a like a project neighborhood. And the thing is that after dark, like you know, like let's say nine ten o'clock. The cops just kind of go home. <laughs> well, they don't go home. They just fall back. Because what they have now over there is the neighborhood runs those streets, right? Obviously, not all of them, because that would be completely lawless. But there's some areas you can't go to without seeing a guy with a machine gun, you know, fucking just sitting there like, yeah, you're not going to enter this neighborhood. You know, It's a pretty wild place. But, again, it's still beautiful, you know. So hopefully, uh, again, we can go back to it one day. And uh, I know you told me the story before. I would love to... You know, hear hear more later. Uh, yeah, man, good stuff. I always love when I hear you speak your Spanish. It is so intimidating to me to even try to speak any Spanish. Really? Why? Why? What is that? I don't know. I'll ask you, Donde está la baño? I'll say something about tu madre or something. Who knows? I'll go off on a tangent. <laughs> that's all I remember from my Spanish. So, well, so, I, I, t- I tell you what. The same way you feel, you know, about speaking Spanish with me is the same way I would feel speaking Spanish with someone like from Spain because they're probably looking at my Spanish like, oh, this guy is like uh, from the jungle or something. <laughs> this guy, uh, you know, doesn't speak it very well. I don't, I don't have that yeah. Castellano, you know, uh, you know, accent, as it were. Every foreign country I go to and I try to speak a foreign language, my wife makes fun of me. We were in Paris once and uh, the waiter asked me something and I said, see, si. she goes, mm. we dummy, it's we. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. All right, Hector, a lot of crazy stories in cybersecurity today. This is probably going to be a fat episode unless uh, Phineas gets in here and hacks all this stuff up. So if there's guys, if you didn't just listen to like 22 minutes of banter, that means uh, Phineas cut all of our good banter out of the front. Damn that Phineas. Damn you, Phineas. They're going to start like a Phineas hate club soon. (laughs) We'll put put on like an anti-Phineas shirt on the website. And the website is being made as we speak. It will go live probably this week. (laughs) I promise to sell the merch. So the first story you sent over to me, Hector, I really enjoyed reading. It was more of a, a Twitter thread. Um, oh, I don't think you can't say Twitter and thread in the same sentence. Whoopsie. Oh, you? wow. You just, oh, you just committed oh, a cardinal oh. sin, my friend. We'll see. I can't <laughs> call it a Twitter thread. Uh-oh. Um, well, it's, but it's something. <laughs> it is something. But it came from Hacks Rob at Hacks Rob, H-A-X-R-O-B. Mm-hmm. Um, and a friend of his uh, was asking him some questions about why his light bulb needed to know where he was located. Mm. And so he looked into the, the app. Um, he had got some of those smart light bulbs, 
uh, and started going through the lights, and he uh, he found out some interesting information. Uh, this was a great article. What do you think about it? I think it was a great read. Um, I really appreciated um, Hack Rob's research and how he explained his process. He obviously mm. does has done this before. He definitely has a research methodology. He has experience in kind of breaking things apart and kind of following the trail. So big shout out for him or to him for for his work here. I wasn't necessarily surprised, but I'm glad that he put this thread together because it's awareness that he was sharing. He was he was you know he didn't put this together to show off his capabilities. He was putting this together to show the audience. Listen, when you're buying a smart device, here's probably what's happening on the background, on the back end, right? Um, so it was pretty fascinating to see, you know, kind of, uh, you know, his attention to detail, but also the kind of information that the provider or the manufacturer of these devices were actually collecting. So, yeah, just to get to the end of the story is even if as the user of the app, you turned off, turn off my location services for this app mm -hmm. and you try to then pair your your Bluetooth um, to the light, smart light bulbs. Yep. The, it still siphoned off your GPS coordinates and send it to the company. So scary situation your light bulbs are given away where you live um but yeah the, for this for me what i really like for the audience is you know his methodology you always talk about you you know these guys get into cybersecurity, go into the interview and have a methodology of doing things um mm -hmm. and rob you know puts it out there including the tools he used so gotcha. you know it's great for guys that are getting into cybersecurity or want to do reverse engineering or, you know, to programmers that want to debug. He talks about what programs he used uh, and what he pulled out of it and how he did it. So, yeah, great read for, for anyone that wants to get into the sort of thing. Oh, yeah. And, the, and the, kind of the one point I, I kind of lay out here, and this is, this is a thread that the audience should read. So we're not going to go into too many de technical details. But one of the things that I found very interesting with his, his kind of his breakdown is that according to the developer, and... There is a disclosure in the app store that says that precise location data collection is optional. But that's not what Hacks Rob found here. What he did identify is that regardless of whether you choose the option or not, GPS coordinates are still being sent to the manufacturer's uh, remote server over the internet. And theoretically, they're just, they're just collecting uh, location data on where exactly these, these products are um, deployed. And that could be problematic, especially if the manufacturer becomes rogue or sells that information to either a third party or wants to provide that data or information to um, perhaps a nation state, right? So definitely problematic, something to really think about. And for those of you that have smart devices in your home, you, know, you might want to take a closer look as to what it is you're installing and, uh, and kind of deploying at home. Yeah, just a little another kick to the audience to to go read this. Uh, really, kind of a fun thing, you know. Hacks Rob found that uh, the the post data was encrypted, um, and so he thought, "Oh, the gig's up. I'm not going to be able to figure out what's going on." But then he found running a program that he talks about that he found where the information was passed to the encryption process. So he just grabbed that that data there, and so you know where you think you know, "Oh, I'm stuck. It's encrypted. I can't get past this." He found a way, and he shows the audience how to do that. So, again, big props to Hacks Rob and audience. Go out and read this one if you're interested in, you know, the this reverse engineering and that sort of thing. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Interesting title on the next one you sent over to me, Hector. Microsoft can fix ransomware tomorrow. Ooh. So let's let's kind of go through this. You were telling me before the show uh, that the guy who wrote this, you know, sort of get roasted. But first, let's kind of get into the idea of what he says, how Microsoft could stop ransomware. So 
as we know, and the audience knows, ransomware works by going through the files one by one and replacing it with an encrypted version of that file. It goes very fast. Um, speed is of the essence, you know, it's, you know, it's a, at a lightning pace, you know. And software in Microsoft Windows, so we're just talking about Windows machines here. They use an application uh, uh, program interface, an API called Create File to access those files. You know, Create File not only creates files, but it's also the primary way of opening them. So the author of this article said, well, if Microsoft just rate limited create file, the create file API, then the encryption software couldn't go fast enough to the ransomware, couldn't go fast enough to encrypt all the files. What did you read about the backlash to this approach to stopping ransomware? Yeah. So just to give, you know, some, so at least my perspective on this is that uh, the author here was, you know, coming up with ideas. He's throwing out ideas. He's trying to, you know, come up with a way to kind of deal with mitigating this massive problem that most organizations are dealing with uh, today. Um, and he figured, hey, you know what? Let's look at the API. Let's look at the Windows API and see if maybe we could do something there to either throttle or slow down or even mitigate an actual ransomware campaign. Okay, cool. It sounds good in theory, but InfoSec Twitter, uh, let the author have it. They kind of went at it. They broke down how this is not going to work because theoretically these API calls, and it's not just create file. You have thousands upon thousands of different API functions that are constantly called, um, you know, almost, you know, in real time or as close to it as possible. And they're constantly running in the background. Create files probably run, you know, I don't know, thousands of times uh, per hour or, or maybe a minute depending on, on your activity. So they're like, well, if, if the idea to stop ransomware is to, is to rate limit or throttle the call to the create file function, then it's just going to slow down the rest of the operating system down to a crawl. So it is not an effective way of dealing with the problem, and it's not, it's not even the core problem itself. So you're trying to, um, you know, you're trying to kind of deal with a, a, a separate problem by basically uh, screwing up the rest of the uh, functionality of the system. I mean, there were, there were some good points on both sides. I've seen arguments on both sides on Hacker News, on, on Reddit, and, of course, Twitter. And the general consensus is, okay, we understand why this article even exists right now. We understand why this person, the author, is trying to promote that Microsoft can fix ransomware. But the proposed way of doing it, the method that's proposed in the article, is not effective. It's not going to work. And if anything, it's, it's, it's speculative or provocative, but that's it. Yeah, to me, it seems like just the, the title was written and we had to come up with a way to, to match the title. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, it's just a clickbait maybe, but but no, mm -hmm. it was interesting. I like that he's thinking outside the box, trying to come up with a different way because, you know, yeah, ransomware, you know, is crippling. We probably have three or four more stories, you know, that we could have done tonight just about ransomware. I think exactly. we have at least one more. So it is a huge problem in the industry today. It, it, this is a tough one for me, right? Because um, there are probably things that Microsoft can do. But you also have to remember that Microsoft is also running, you know, they're, they're kind of developing and managing, I would say, distribution of Windows systems that are quite broad in nature, right? It's just not one specific architecture or one specific device they're creating an operating system for. They're creating these operating systems for all sorts of different users, for all sorts of different use cases. And a lot of customers, believe it or not, are legacy. These are folks that are still running Windows XP on their internal networks. 
I know because I see it when I do jobs. Um, so it's very difficult, you know, and I, I'm sure someone's going to curse me out on this one, but I'm sure it's very difficult for Microsoft to say, okay, yeah, we're just going to throttle API calls and see what happens. No, they're probably going to affect millions of systems around the world and hundreds of thousands of different businesses just with this one throttle change. So, uh, yeah, provocative story is great for discussion, great for debate. It's not ideal. And to be honest, I'm sure Microsoft has had this internal debate themselves. You know, I'm sure there were several different developer groups and security teams that sat together one day and said, okay, what if we throttle API calls? Okay, what if we do X or Y or Z? And the answer is probably always going to be, it's going to affect the business. And this is probably something we cannot do. Yeah, the, the article talks about, you know, maybe software creators get special certificates and all that. And then it's just a race to, to use those certificates, you know, they're to how they can put hooks into those certificates and, and you know, manipulate the software that way. So, but, and they also talked in the article about, you know, and, I, and I, just to give the, the, the author, you know, he, he does say end with, you know, Microsoft should rate limit the create file API is a can of worms, just making that statement. But given the uh, exceptional cost of ransomware today, I think that the can of worms is worth opening. And he says, I think my former colleagues are up to the challenge. So, you know, he does understand that, you know, this is just an out there idea. But, you know, maybe we can, you know, come up with, you know, piggyback off this idea into something that can Microsoft can use to maybe stop some of this stuff. Absolutely. So, Hector, the next story is cyber criminals can break voice authentication with 99% success rate. Ooh. So we are seeing voice authentication being employed in a lot of banking software these days. Mm -hmm. Have you ever used uh, voice authentication? Yeah, and in some cases by force. There are some banks that require some sort of voice authentication. I'm not sure why they enforce that. I didn't ask for it. And so if you fail voice authentication, then you, you won't get sent to the main menu. You may have to deal with customer support. And of course, if you're trying to get to like an automated system, that's, that's inconvenient. But yeah, this is definitely something I've experienced. There are some banks, without mentioning names, that are using voice authentication right now. And that's problematic when you're seeing uh, research projects coming out, in this case, from the University of Waterloo, that says, hey, by the way, using AI and using you know, other tools... We could probably replicate your your voice uh, up to a degree, and we may even be able to bypass or circumvent uh, voice authentication controls, which that's not great. So those in the audience who haven't used it, what it is is it's, it's like a voice print or a voice authentication. Um, you set up your account, and they ask you to say like a certain phrase, and the phrase has certain points within the system that kind of pulls out data that they need to know about it. And so when you call in, they don't ask you to repeat that same phrase, but there are certain these points within the voice print uh, they want you to authenticate. Now, I have been, I've also been forced to do it, Hector, but mine had to come from, not only was the voice authentication, but it had to come from the same number on file. Um, so the, sort of a combination of the two. Yeah, no, definitely a combination. But now imagine a scenario. Let's visualize the attack path here. So let's assume we're the attackers. You have a victim. You have access to like a rogue telco. You're able to do some, you know, some finagling. You're able to maybe do a SIM swap. Um, okay, now you have access to the person's phone number. You have access to an engine that allows you to kind of replicate the target or the victim. You're calling into the bank from the number and you're using their fake audio recording and now you're actually getting through to the banking system. Now, your question probably is, or the audience here would be, well, Hector, what's the likelihood of that happening like right now? Well, it would require that attackers have at least two things 
or at least three things it had. One is information. They need to know one, you know, or A, who your bank is. B, they need to know, you know, what your number is. So it can't be like a random stranger on the internet that's trying to they're trying to scam you. They have to have some sort of information about you. And then of course, C, you know, if there's some sort of authentication token, maybe like a passphrase, they will need to know that as well. Right. I haven't experienced that from the, the systems I've used. They just need like some sort of voice uh, message or some like very simple line. But with those details, then they could go to two, uh, which is they, they need some sort of engine to uh, to be able to kind of make this happen. Maybe custom, maybe something that's open source. And then finally, they need a recording of your voice. That's the part that was kind of scary to me, Hector. So it, they were, the article says that a machine learning enabled deep fake software to generate this thing could use as little as five minutes of your recorded audio to make your fake voice. What would happen if like you and your buddy got on a you know microphone and talked into it for an hour every week and put all that information out there? Do you think that'd be enough information so they could deep fake our voices? Absolutely. I mean, oh, I- don't tell me that. <laughs> Yeah, someone somewhere right now could deep fake our voices and, you know, do whatever it is. I mean, that's not to give anybody ideas, but luckily I use a fake voice on this podcast. I'm not this nasally in real life. Yeah, same here. Uh, don't, don't let out our secrets, bro. <laughs> no, um, you just got the new microphone last week because Patrick roasted you in yeah. an email. And now now they have you there. Your perfect voice. I'm going to stick with my shitty mic so they can't spoof my voice. <laughs> Yeah, maybe you know what? Maybe maybe Patrick was involved in like a so, a long term you know social engineering oh. campaign. Yeah, Patrick socially engineered you. He, yeah, he, he got uh, he got me. He got my voice. What's got my it called? Voice. It's called it's called negging. Uh, he he used negative reinforcement. He negged you into getting a new microphone wow. so he could voice you. Oh my god, Patrick, <laughs> you freaking genius! Oh yeah. Well, it's funny. He hit, he hit me up on LinkedIn again. He's like, "Hey, buddy, uh, thanks for not mentioning my name." I was like, "No problem, dude. You're good." No, you did. No, no, his name, not his full name. I, you know, I didn't oh, want to talk oh, oh. Yeah, Just yeah. Patrick. I yeah. <laughs> so, you know, that was that was pretty fun. Um, I mean, I'm not surprised by this, right? These stories are not surprising because we saw what happened as soon as GPT became available to the audience, to the public. We saw people coming up with a whole bunch of different creative ways to use uh, AI or machine learning language models, you know, to, to kind of do some very interesting things. Uh, like taking an image and creating an animated GIF out of it. Um, taking a, a, a video and, and, and putting together like really cool stills from the video, you know, automatically without having to sit down and use uh, some sort of product to, to edit, right? Um, we've seen things like music being deep faked. I forgot which artist in particular. I think there was Drake. Somebody, somebody has been making like Drake deep fakes of him singing different songs. It's interesting to see. I'm not surprised. And I think that any organization, especially in banking, that's using voice authentication, they're probably kicking themselves in the ass. They maybe did not expect this. And two, how do they deal with this moving forward? Well, you either have to disable it or, you know, you know, I would say educate the audience on the potential risks of something like this happening. Yeah, I mean, instead of use multiple attacks to do it, you know, after six tries, you could limit it. I mean, I don't know if that's a, a really good success, but, sure. but yeah, like you said at the beginning, if you fail, you know, I, I think if you fail one time, you uh, you know should be go over to a live person, but still, I mean, this they could just get the machine learning, you know, uh, deep fake stuff that good that it doesn't fail ever. So yeah, you know, I don't yeah. know. Yeah, well, think uh, about it like this, right? So, in terms of countermeasures, and, and you can find this in the article, folks. There have been some products, some tools, some projects that have been used to kind of detect 
uh, GPT style write-ups. Okay, um, I know some schools are are investing in products for exactly that. They want to be able to identify uh, when students are using GPT or similar to kind of create fake articles or fake essays, etc. You know, that that's a major issue in any educational uh, uh, environment. So theoretically, you could probably apply the same methodology on potentially identifying, um, you know, a deep fake audio uh, recording or so. But the attackers are going to continue modifying and modifying until they perfect it. And that's where it gets scary. Because once they perfect it, it's almost going to sound just like you, you know? Well, that, I mean, that's sort of the path these guys at the University of Waterloo did is they they found within a recording what was, quote unquote, that robot voice. You know, yeah. you, you know, when you're talking to a computer and they were able to, you know, go through and write software that softened these points. Um, so that was mm. their, their approach was, you know, to kind of take that computer voice out of it. Sure. Um, and that's how they got past it. So good on them for the research. You know, I always like when uh, a security measure is proven to be. Uh, not useful anymore. So hopefully, you know, this uh, teaches you to, you know, if your bank is using voice authentication to, mm-hmm. like Hector said, make sure you have multiple points of authentication, not just this, because uh, it seems like it might be done because of uh, the, the machine learning stuff. Absolutely. And AI screws us again, Hector. <laughs> yeah, I feel like it's going to be a constant battle against AI for the next, you know, thousand years yeah. um, until our overlords take over. <laughs> you mean AI? Yeah, the AI overlords. Oh. So AI now is absorbing films and absorbing scripts and film and, and, and images and all this cool stuff. And, you know, it becomes sentient in a way. Enough that it'll develop how 9,000, you know? I think it's going to build a rocket ship and leave Earth. Be like, these guys are dumb. <laughs> well, they're going to attach little legs to computers. They'll they just take, <laughs> jump in a rocket and fly off. You're going to start seeing, like, uh, no, never mind. I'm not going to go down that path. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) You don't want to give any ideas, okay? Yeah, no no ideas, because AIs can definitely listen to us. We are extremely happy to partner with Delete Me. Not only is Delete Me a great company to work with, their product is easy to use and provides a great service for those of us who are serious about our cybersecurity. Hector used Delete Me long before starting the podcast because Delete Me's proven track record of removing our private information from over 750 data brokers. Hector's praise of Delete Me convinced me to start using their services too. We talk about personally identifiable information, you know, PII, being stolen on the show all the time. Every week, there's a new breach we discuss with millions of records being exposed. Data brokers are out there collecting your stolen information 24-7. Cyber criminals are using your personal identifiable information for things like opening lines of credit, making purchases on your credit card, and even stealing your tax refund. Delete Me is working hard to remove your PII from these data brokers. Delete Me removes private information from hundreds of data brokers. Delete Me has over 100 million successful opt-out removals completed by their privacy advisors. The service is really easy to use. Your welcome email gets you started and you submit your information. Delete Me's experts will find or remove your personal information and the removal process starts and you will receive a detailed Delete Me report in seven days. And then Delete Me scans and deletes your information all year long. Delete Me's mission is simple, to remove customers' information from search results. As you all know, and we talk about every week, this is an important step to securing your online world. Through our partnership with Delete Me, Hacker and the Fed listeners get 20% off all consumer plans with the code FED20. That's F-E-D-2-0. 
Go to joindeleteme.com slash fed and use code fed20 for 20% off. This is a great service that helps support our show. Again, joindeleteme.com slash fed and use code FED20, fed20 for 20% off all consumer plans. Hector and I are very excited to be working with Drata once again. When do you have insight into your company's compliance, security, and risk postures? If it's right before an audit, you're in the same boat as many other organizations. With Drata, G2's highest rated cloud compliance software, you'll have continuous monitoring and visibility into your risk, security controls, and audit readiness for standards like SOC 2, ISO 27001, GDPR, HIPAA, and more. Drata can streamline compliance for over 14 frameworks and even automate the custom frameworks and controls you create to meet your organization's unique security needs. With more than 75 native integrations and a risk management solution, you'll have a tool that will scale with you. Countless security professionals from companies like Norton, Lemonade, and Bamboo HR have shared how crucial it is to have Drata as their trusted compliance partner. Listeners of Hacker and the Fed get 10% off Drata and waived implementation fees. Go to drata.com slash partner slash hacker dash fed. Again, drata, D-R-A-T-A dot com slash partner slash hacker dash fed. Please support Drata. It helps Hacker and the Fed if you support our sponsors. They are a great company to work with. They are supporting our efforts to make cyber more secure. All right. Well, it looks like Interpol nabbed the Happing Crew operators leader behind uh, an $11 million cybercrime spree. So mm. a suspect, uh, the senior member of this, the French-speaking hacking crew known as Operator, has been arrested. And the group has been believed to be part of $11 million, potentially as high as $30 million in more than 30 attacks across uh, 15 countries. So... Another guy arrested. It looks like uh, U.S. Secret Service Criminal Investigative Division was part of this. Uh, way to go, U.S. Secret Service. What do you think about more and more of these guys getting arrested? And do you think on this one, I know we talked about, it, do you think it was because these guys were operating in France that uh, may be the reason they got caught? Well, it definitely does not help them, right? If you're, if you're committing crimes, especially against assets belonging to an ally's interests, then that's problematic. You can't expect that your home country is going to say, yeah, you know what, we're going to, we're going to um, just allow you to break into U.S. infrastructure or Australian infrastructure um, and just go all willy-nilly about it. Um, no, eventually it's going to catch up with you. And not only that, not only if you make mistakes, right, you also have people that are within your organization that are probably going to turn on you when, the, when it's necessary. So, yeah, I mean, this, this guy, this person... Probably did not expect. I mean, you have to look at the time frame. These guys have been working since 2018-ish uh, until recently. And they were probably involved in a whole bunch of different, you know, uh, hacking campaigns. And, and, you know, they were threat actors in their own right. Well, I think they were focused on banking, financial services, and telecommunications. That's really what they were going after. Yeah. And it, it seems like that, you know, and that's, that's, that's major, right? Because if you're targeting banks, financial services, and telecom. Um, you're really opening the doors for getting 
getting hit very hard. You're going to you're going to have a bunch of pissed off law enforcement folks chasing after you. Right? This is not you know hacking into a, a local coffee shop for free coffee, right? This is like way beyond the scope, and there are a ton of risks associated with even even that doing that or even having the mindset to do that, especially from France. You know, it's it's difficult to be a criminal when you're living in, you know, I guess the West, quote unquote, because you know that once you're doxxed, once the law enforcement in the area find you, um, they're going to catch you and they're going to, you know, definitely make an example out of you. Worst case scenario, you get extradited to the United States. I'm not sure you guys know this. Um, the prisons here are not, you know, they're not walks in the parks. So the one thing you don't want to do is one, attack U.S. assets from an ally nation and two, um, get caught up to the point that you're extradited. So uh, this guy definitely made some several, I would say, major blunders, and it probably will be made a, made a, an example out of for sure. I mean, I'm not going to question you because you you had a better, better idea than I do. But man, I don't think prisons over in other foreign countries are all that great either. Yeah. I've heard some terrible stories about like the South American prisons and that sort of thing, and even yeah. the you know Eastern European, um, not so good. Yeah, hell, absolutely. But imagine yourself, you know, you're, you're, you're French, you've had a pretty chill life for the most part, you got into hacking by accident, you saw you can make some money, cool, you thought that it was, hey, you know, it's a, it's a nonviolent crime, I'm not really hurting anybody, you know, and then now you're being extracted to the United States and you're sitting on, uh, you're sitting at MCC, you know, next to uh, the New York City courts. It's not a fun time. It's not a fun time for anybody, even a hardened criminal. Yeah, imagine if they, if they don't know English either. I mean, I guess that would be even harder. Even harder. I doubt sure. they, they supply you with a translator to follow you around all day. <laughs> Definitely not. Um, I was in MCC for a minute, and folks that were being extradited from other countries like the United Kingdom, uh, from Germany, you know, they, they found it difficult because they were basically transplanted in a foreign land, and, um, you know, they, uh, they weren't getting along so well. Except for this guy from Germany. This guy had the time of his life, I tell you. He was, <laughs> this guy, there was this guy I was with in, in, in MCC in Severn North. He was like, like, it was a movie. Like, he was living a dream. He was, like, laughing and making, like, ramen noodles. He was learning how to cook prison food. Like, it was like a, like a, like an Anthony Bourdain, you know, documentary that he was doing. What did he get locked up for? Oh, something very dumb. He, he. He liked to party, as you can imagine from what I'm, I was just telling you. Who doesn't? Yeah, he, he liked to party, and he was like, eh, I'm going to come from Germany to the United States with a whole bag of, like, you know, of Oxycontins, or, or not even. It was like, a, it, was something, it was something random, bro. Like, it wasn't like, like ecstasy. I, no, I think it was ecstasy, yeah. Mm. He was like, yeah, I'm just going to go to the United States with a bag of ecstasy uh, tied to my leg, and I'm going to have a great time. What he didn't realize is that by doing that, he was technically, you know, drug trafficking, right? So, yeah, you know, that's a federal crime, especially coming from out of state, out of country, right? And, yeah, they caught him, and he was in MCC having a blast. I take you didn't keep in touch afterwards? No, definitely not. <laughs> so I think the biggest story in cyber news this week was that Japan's biggest port was hit by a cyber attack. Ooh. Did you read about that? Yeah, I read about it. I find it interesting. We talk a lot about supply chain attacks. So, I, mm -hmm. obviously, this was a great story I think that we, we should definitely cover. Yeah, so like you said, we talk about supply chains. This is more of a logistics, uh, you know, attack. So, you know, 
this shutting down this port through, and I think it's sort of leaked out, you know, and again, we record this podcast and it comes out, you know, four or five days later. Um, so if this whole story has blown up and uh, we're not totally up on our information, I apologize because these things move fast, but they haven't exactly said what it is, but the the owner of the port, the operator of the port, has uh, received a ransom demand in exchange for recovery of its systems. Mm. Uh, they said so. That makes, leads me to believe that yes, this is a ransomware attack. And you know, if Microsoft just would have rate limited that one API, then this could have been solved. But no, no. Uh, they just want to make fun of that guy. I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> These sort of attacks, Hector, do mm -hmm. you see them as being opportunistic? Do you think it's a, a test of the system? Um, do you, the attackers want to see how far they can go? You know, this is a, you know, a big thing. There's a lot of, like, cars that leave this port. Mm -hmm. Again, you know, Japan is very big on uh, shipping and international um, shipping. And so shutting down a port like this is, is big to them. Um, could this be another country? testing what would happen you know if this port got shut down or do you think it's simply just people financially motivated criminals yeah this is a great question i think this is a question that it really deserves time to kind of go over the different mindsets that could be associated to the story here like for example you're right it could be a test run it could be a, a rogue state that says okay what would happen if we were able to if we were able to shut down japan's biggest port What's the worst case scenario? What is their response time? How fast can they recover? How fast can they get back to shipping, logistics, and storage, and all that, right? It could be a test run, for sure. And that test run, depending on the results, could mean a lot of things to different people, okay? In a wartime scenario, we could shut down this port and cause three months of, you know, uh, of, of back orders and, and backlogs and cause a whole bunch of things to happen, Okay. It could also mean, hey, if we hit this port, are we able to get a ransom out of them? You know, can we get paid on this? It could also be testing of the port, software, products, um, you know, manufacturing process and methodology, not manufacturing, but logistic process. And if this port is unique, uh, or it's not unique rather, are other ports similarly breachable through the same methodology, through the same vulnerabilities? Um, so yeah, there's, there's some angles there. Now, of course, on the flip side of that, you have the dumb kid that's learning how to hack. They accidentally found their way into this, um, into this organization and they were screwing around and, you know, shut some machines down and caused the panic, right? That could also happen, but that's also scary. Yeah. A dumb kid trips over and knocks over a country's GDP. The whole thing is, uh, no good. Oh yeah. And for those of you that are economists or for those of you that, um, are very big into uh, global politics and, and geopolitical geopolitics and, and economics. Rather, you know that the way the world works right now, economically speaking, at least, it's like a, you know, it's it's like a like a domino, you know, setup. And in many ways, it's kind of like a glass house. And if you break one section, you might break the others. You know, I know here in the United States, uh, at least on you know the political channels, there's always like arguments like, hey, we need to be strict with China, or we need to be easier with China. You know, China's a great example. But China and the United States in many ways are symbiotic, right? There's a lot of import and export between the countries. If we were to completely shut down China, it would affect the United States um, economically, 100%. It would probably cripple China as well, because we are probably China's biggest customer, okay? So now if you have people screwing around with logistics, with supply chains, 
you know, one bad move could cause a global catastrophic event. And uh, that's very scary. And for those of you listening that you're kind of dipping and dabbing in the gray area, just be careful with things like this. You, the one thing you don't want to do is accidentally get yourself labeled as a terrorist. Because uh, that's very close to that. Yeah, I don't want to accidentally or purposely be ever labeled a terrorist, so it's good. Um, yeah. <laughs> but, well, but let me ask you a question. It, uh, sure, from, from, from the law enforcement side, let's say you have a, a young, dumb kid, and they break into uh, one of New York's ports, right? Um, yeah. Pick anything, right? Um, or any major port here in the United States. And they cause a catastrophic uh, network uh, uh, shutdown. And then you find the kid. Aside from the hacking, aside from that, like, what kind of consequences do you think they'll be facing? I mean, that's pretty big, right? Their charges would probably, you know, be pretty extensive, I could imagine. I mean, it depends on the losses they can say the associated with the crime. Mm. Um, you know, they could make them, I mean, if, if a port like this just shut down, I could see where, it's, you know, you'd be losing anywhere from $100 million to a $1 billion a day. You know, are they, is the court system going to put, you know, a $5 billion fee on a kid because um, he hacked into it? I mean, maybe they would, but they're never going to pay it off. So, yeah, that kid would be pretty screwed for a while. So, Or maybe it'd lead into a, he'd become you know, famous and get a podcast. Who knows? <laughs> Come on. <bro. laughs> uh, well, maybe one day we'll interview him. Maybe, maybe. Raising concerns over Google Authenticator's new feature. Google Authenticator, so those who don't know, it's been around since 2010. Mm -hmm. And what it is, is it's a uh, more secure 2FA alternative um, to ha than having a text message, one code type of code sent to you. Mm -hmm. It's an app that runs on your phone, and it's a secret code. It's shared, and it rotates about every 30 seconds. Um, and when you log in, you put in your username and password, and then it asks for this code. It gives you, you know, a little extra security. So you have to have, you know, your physical phone with you along with your username and password to get into a, a thing. Google Authenticator just put out a new feature this week um, that now enables users to synchronize its 2FA codes on multiple devices through the cloud. So it does. It's a flexibility for that provides users. You know, if they lose their phone or, or what, or, or you know, they get locked out of their device. You know, mm -hmm. they can go to another device that has the same secret codes. Uh, the problem is, is these codes are, are shared in the clear. Whoopsie daisy. That's not good. <laughs> yeah. So your secret code or the basis of your secret code, your seed phrase sure. for your two FA, the whole process is not encrypted. Um, so this might be, you know, this is helpful uh, to step in the right direction to be a little bit more helpful for users for Google Authenticator. The problem is the implementation. They kind of screwed it up. Yeah, this is a tough one, right? Because we are constantly dealing with convenience versus security. People want to be just, they want to be able to open up their computers and just get to work. They don't want to deal with authentication prompts. They don't want to deal with all these extra steps. And so there are compromises that are being made. And a big shout out to like Google um, Apple, um, and then, of course, uh, the folks that have developed WebAuthN and the FIDO Alliance and all these people for coming up with these different protocols. More recently, we have passkeys, and passkeys have been working very well, at least for me. I I'm very happy with passkeys um, until a, a, probably an attack path for vulnerability comes out, I'm sure. But uh, nonetheless, convenience tends to compromise um, you know, the overall security posture for individuals and, and, and organizations. In this case, that's what we have. Imagine a scenario where your laptop is stolen and or someone has long-term persistence to one of your uh, Google accounts, G Drive, whatever. Uh, they're getting access to these keys. And now for the rest of 
for the rest of your life um, or the life of your accounts, they will have access um, to, to, to be able to generate MFA codes or one-time codes for your accounts. You know, that's, that's problematic. And the one thing I'll tell folks is I, I get it. I get the convenience. I get synchronization. I understand people wanted this feature. And I hope after these discussions, Chris, we can motivate folks to, to look into alternative routes. Um, or at the very least for Google to figure out a way, at least in this case, to be able to synchronize in a way that's more secure. Um, and I'm sure they're probably doing research right now as we speak. When you set up a Google Authenticator, and I, I've done it before, you give it a QR code on the screen. So yep. you set up your account and you have a QR code. You point your phone at You turn on the app. You hit plus to add a new one. Mm -hmm. And you point your phone with your camera at the QR code. And then it generates this new number on your, this six digit number on your phone. Mm -hmm. And then it asks you to sync to make sure, you know, before you move on that you and the website are in agreement that this is your secret, your secret code that changes every 30 seconds. Sure. Now, when I do that, I also have my wife's phone and I have her do the same thing. Yeah. So we both have the secret code on our phones protected through, you know, the, the have our physical security. Sure. The difference here that they're doing now is that I could just now share with her through my Google device, through my Google account, that secret code. Instead of us just both taking the, the, you know, the screenshot while it's up on the screen at the same time, now we're sharing it through Google's cloud, correct? That's, that's the big difference, the new feature on this? Well, yeah, so theoretically that, that could be possible, right? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think right now, as is, any person with access to the account Regardless of the devices, they have they have five Android devices attached to the same account. They could synchronize with Google Authenticator and get the keys, you know, get the seeds um, for that those services that you have uh, MFA on. My approach with my wife is there a security flaw there that you can see? Well, the the biggest security flaw there, if you speak to a real like really strict security professional um, mm -hmm. and privacy expert and all that extra stuff, the biggest mistake they're going to tell you you're making is that you're expanding your attack surface. Uh, that I now have two two device two physical devices I need to, to protect for yeah. that that two factor authentication. Exactly. So the more devices you add, you're you're expanding your attack surface exponentially. Okay. Now, if you start using devices that are not technically in sync with each other, meaning you have an Android phone and then your wife has an iPhone, um, and then like you know, let's say you add you know one of your kids to that and they're using their iPad. Now it, it gets more and more complex the more you go, the more you add, right? And I agree. I, I've seen that before. I've seen people attack where, like, um, a mom will let her kid log into her iPad um, on her, her account, and then the kid has access to the 2FA stuff. I, I agree with that. So, so yeah, expanding that attack vector is, is a big approach. But, you know, two separate accounts. Um, you know, up until now, Google Authenticator was just on the devices. It didn't attach. You didn't need it. You didn't have a Google account to use Authenticator. You could just, you know, have the app on your phone and, and never even have any other Google account. But now it seems to they're going to tie the Authenticator into your Google account. Yeah. And then that's, again, I, I get why, especially in your case, right? So, you know, mm -hmm. you're in marriage. You want your wife to have access just in case. You know, you're you're not able to log into accounts. You need her to do it for you. It completely makes sense why you guys need need to do it this way. Hundred percent. The hit by the bus scenario. You know. Yeah. This the this the bus scenario, right? Um, and she needs to start logging in and, and doing preparations and contacting folks, and she can't because she's locked out, right? So it makes sense why you guys would do that. Hundred percent. Um, I think the school of thought here is, um, and I've seen this with crypto. When people are having conversations about how they store crypto locally, they'll segment a device specific for those codes. 
And that device will probably be offline. It'll probably be a phone in your house, and it may not even have internet connections. It'll be a phone that's disconnected from the world, all right? Um, maybe using a Wi-Fi, maybe you don't. But the point is it's segmented. Now, you could do that with multiple phones. You can have the same QR code attached to two phones in your home. And you can have one that's offline and one that's online, right? And your wife could have the same. And that is considered more safer um, than you having the QR code on your current phone that you do everything on and same with your wife, right? So there's, there's ways around it. There's ways to kind of work with this without having to, you know, utilize synchronization. I think adding synchronization to, into your workflow, into your everyday life is just expanding your attack surface. Now, the one thing I'll say for the audience here is, you know, I, I've laid out a scenario for you as an example. How are you guys dealing with this? If there's anybody out there that's listening and you guys have had the same conversation with your spouses and partners, I would love to hear your input. You know, uh, we have a great, you know, email there, questions at hackerinthefed.com. You can send, you know, your input and your observation on how you deal with this exact problem. Yeah, I will say for the, if you guys read this article, it said that there was a lack of additional security layers on Google Authenticator, um, specifically the lack of passcodes or biometric security. Mm -hmm. On my Google Authenticator, I can't get in without my face. I don't know if that's an iPhone setting or what I'm missing there, but either that's completely wrong or you, you know, you know, there is additional security available for Google Authenticator. Yeah, I'll be honest with you. When I load up Google Authenticator, it just loads up. So it's possible that I'm missing a setting myself, yeah. and you probably have a setting in place that, that adds an extra layer of security, and that's a great point. But of course, I have an initial biometrics or initial pin code before I get into my phone itself. Yeah. So the attacker would need to get me with my phone open and grab the phone and then have access to Authenticator and then log in, right? But yeah, it's, it gets interesting the more deeper you start including these security services and tools into your life. Um, and then you're like, okay, I need some convenience because this is too much. I'm, I'll yeah. keep pressing the damn fingerprint button every, every five minutes just to do things. And that gets annoying after a while. So for the audience, this is a feature that Google's adding to Authenticator. Uh, I think Hector and I have you know, pounded the point home that maybe this feature isn't something you want to use. They start doing end-to-end -end encryption uh, on the app for Google. Maybe mm -hmm. think about it. But again, uh, there's no reason for that secret uh, seed phrase to be connected to your Google account. I, I do understand that if people lose their phone, um, it's a big pain in the ass to get back into oh, yeah. some of these accounts. But, you know, opening up that attack vector of having it stored uh, in your account is, is probably not worth it. Yeah, 100%. So Hector, it looks like Trinidad and Tobago are facing uh, outages after a cyber attack. Uh -oh. um, yeah, they discover a cyber tar attack targeting the country's office of the Attorney General and the Ministry of Legal Affairs. So they've been dealing with outages since June 30th. So as we record this, it's July 10th. So they're looking at almost it's 11 days. Yeah. Yeah internal services are disrupted so uh you know we we kind of read this and like oh another you know another attack in another small country and it kind of got off into a conversation about you know uh, hackers mindsets um oh, you know yeah. and how they've sort of changed over time uh why don't you get into a little bit your thoughts and feelings on you know some of these attacks yeah for sure and, and i'm sure some of the some of the folks in the audience that have been around for quite some time you know, this may re resonate with you. When I first got involved in the hacking scene in the 1990s, every article, every document that I read, those e-zines, right, those electronic magazines that folks would release for different groups, you know, they would have guidelines and methodologies and techniques and procedures, right? They'll kind of explain to you, here's how you hack into Unix. Here's how you, you know, spoof a number. Here's how you spoof a packet, right? All these different great topics. 
the one of the things that I've 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 read so many different times from different groups, different authors was do not attack government assets, do not attack hospitals, you know, don't be a douchebag and and you know ruin the local coffee shop, right? You know, those were the kind of messages that hackers were sharing with each other back in those days. And for a long time, yeah, I did exactly that. I avoided, you know, when I was breaking into things, I would avoid government servers and I would avoid hospitals, for example. Um, I, I w- the, the idea of attacking like St. Jude's Children's Hospital would be like blasphemy to me. But over time, unfortunately, as different groups developed and different methodologies came out and a lot of folks that, you know, a Probably not get into hacking out of, for curiosity, right? Um, and more monetary. Uh, the mindset definitely changed them, or, or they've changed the mindset. Where it seems like, and feel free to correct me if I'm wrong, Chris, but it feels like everything is getting hit: governments, hospitals, logistics, supply chains, oil companies, food manufacturers. If they're willing to pay, or they have intellectual property, or uh, attacking those assets may cause a disruption in a specific country. Uh, those engagements are, are, are taking place. They're moving forward. No, I think you're right. I mean, is, so is, do you think it's like sort of like a street crime mentality is now being applied online? Like these, uh, it's it's kind of moved over to the cyber world. It's not just a you know a specialized skill anymore for mm-hmm. you to be a hacker. It's it's sort of you know these tools have allowed this. Could that lead to it? Absolutely. You know, and as you have more people from different backgrounds getting involved in hacking and security research and so on, um, they're probably bringing some baggage with them. And maybe their their ethics are not, you know, uh, on par with what the, the, the old scene would hope. You know, it's, it's like the equivalent of, you know, robbing an old lady down the street, grabbing her purse and running. Right. And you're you're, you know, you're a 20 year old guy and you're fit and you're you're at your peak and you see a little old lady. You're like, OK, cool. This is a great opportunity. Let me just grab her purse and run, or let me hit her and, and cause some fear in her life and, and just, just take advantage. It's, it's, it's shitty, okay? It's, it's not cool. I don't know why hospitals will be attacked, but there's, there's consequences to that. I think that on the flip side, a lot of these hospitals you know, probably had become lazy at some point or figured, hey, nobody's going to attack us. We're a hospital or we're, we're a healthcare provider. And they, they kind of let their security slip for a minute. It wasn't until some major hospital or healthcare networks were compromised that some of these places started taking uh, security very seriously. I know that for a fact. I've been doing pen testing for most, like I would say half of my life um, as the bad guy, as, as an intruder, but also as a professional. Um, and I've seen healthcare, especially healthcare, you know, really throw a lot of money into security, right? But yeah, the mindset has definitely changed. And when you look at, um, and we had, we had someone, a listener last time, Liza, she mentioned that she's in Guam. And she feels that, you know, Chinese actors are targeting Guam because of its location. You know, here we have Trinidad and Tobago. They're right in the middle of the Caribbean. They are a, a hop, skip, and a step away from the United States mainland. Um, the reality is, is that, yes, these little nation, uh, island nations will be attacked for whatever reason, whether it's financial or uh, strategic. And there's going to be value to somebody. And uh, it's a shame because some of these countries are poor. They're not in a position to, you know, put together a mature security program, at least not yet. Yeah, hopefully we don't see more of this, but I think we're going to. So, Hector, last week you mentioned Liza wrote in for those you new to the show or weren't here last week. Hector and I love questions. Uh, send us your questions at questions at hackerinthefed.com. We love getting your emails and replying back to everybody that we can. 
but we sent out a call to some questions last week, Hector, uh, and you asked some questions, and uh, the listeners stepped up. Um, specifically, we wanted to know more about uh, how law enforcement worked in Australia. So Ryan, who is a detective in Australia, he said, uh, listening to the pod tonight, and it's always funny to hear some similarities with a question that another listener asks. I'm a current detective in Australia for a state police service, primarily working in child protection. So thank you for your service, Ryan. Uh, child protection is a noble uh, thing to be working in. And Absolutely. Uh, I, I, uh, I, I thank you for that. He says, Ryan continues and says, to answer Hector's questions, we have similar powers to subpoena. However, we generally use search warrants to get this information. Can uh, We can get a lot of telecommunication data, IP, subscriber names, etc., from telecommunication companies, ISPs, simply with the approval of a senior officer, which is very easy. Wow. Um, so that's different so. than it is here, because here you need like a, a, a judge's approval, right? Signature? You do, except uh, there are things called administrative subpoenas, which mm. is the same way. So a law enforcement officer can get um, information that way uh, through an administrative student, but it's only for child protective services. Mm -hmm. There's two other offenses that, that like healthcare fraud and, and maybe not healthcare fraud. I know it's child services. It's things that have to happen fastly, fast. Maybe terrorism. Um, maybe something. No, like that? it's not terrorism. You need, oh. you need FISA court for that stuff. Okay. It's God, man, my, my, my legal teacher at the FBI Academy, if he's listening to this, he is ashamed that I did not. I he's don't crushing you out things. right now. He is, but but there there are a few. I the FBI never does them. I, I don't know anybody that's ever done them. Um, when I worked with uh, Homeland Security, they did a lot of administrative subpoenas. Oh, okay, okay. So, so but Ryan continues. Uh, we generally won't use MLATs given the time frame. And again, an MLAT is a, a mutual legal assistance treaty. Uh, it's actually a treaty between the countries. Uh, but most major tech companies have some official address in the country, and they generally provide us with the information if they. Uh, cite a search warrant for the Australian address. So mm. they, you know, they'll, I guess, Google or, you know, Facebook would have a, a, an address there and they just serve it on that entity say, oh, and get the okay. results. So thank you, Ryan. Uh, thank you for your service. Thank you for, you know, doing what you're doing. And thank you for answering Hector's questions. Thank you. Appreciate you. But also, the again, Hector, the listeners really step up when we ask them a question. Um, Trey, the original uh, question from last week, uh, who's a former detective from Australia, he also wrote back to us and he says, thanks for the excellent answers to my questions. Other than law, Australian law enforcement having to fight kangaroos <laughs> and other deadly wildfires, having Christmas at 40 degrees Celsius, that's oh. 104 degrees Fahrenheit for you and I, Hector, yeah. uh, and investigating upside down, I would imagine it is largely similar. <laughs> um, so, uh, he goes on to talk about, you know, the powers of a search warrant and obtaining records vary depending on the jurisdiction, but they are largely similar to that of what I understand the FBI does. And this yeah. is the next and most important part, Hector. Okay. Chris was right. Ah. I'll just leave it at that. But, uh, right. Chris was right. And the sometimes, uh, we have to rely on the MLAT process. So he sort of disagrees with Ryan, but, but, but I like when he says Chris is right to yeah. obtain records. Uh, but in most instances, the companies and business have Australian headquarters. We can just get it there. So okay. they're on the same pace. So, but Trey also came back with a couple of questions that he, he'd he like to ask more, um, sure. which is fine. He's got one uh, for me that says, Chris, how did you find the transition from law enforcement to the private sector? And what skills obtained from your career in the FBI have you found beneficial during the transition? 
I'll say the biggest point for me transitioning. Um, so losing the power of search warrants and the powers of, of subpoenas, um, having to work in an investigation that just doesn't have that nice bow at the end. You know, it could be this, could be that. Here's, you know, it's definitely this IP address from geolocated here, um, sure. but not saying, you know, it's, you know, this bad guy definitely did it. Uh, that was a little different. But the best thing I can offer to law enforcement if, if they're leaving and going off into the world is your network. Yes. Who you know, who you can reach out to, who you can say, hey, I got this problem. What do you think of this? This is also where people hire you. I mean, if you're, you know, trying to do the whole, you know, at Naxo, we do, we, we do, you know, former FBI agent, you know, it's like a, an investigator without the badge, sure. um, you know, comes in and does a whole deep FBI investigation into your, into your, um, your situation or whatever you have going on with your company, calling in people. Hey, what do you think of this? You have experience in that. Who you know is very, very important. It's the best thing I can take from you. You know, you take certifications, you can take, you know, experience is good, but it's all about who you know and who you can call upon. So, but Trey has a question for you too, Hector. He says, uh, I, I have a similar question for Hector. I would love to hear what it was like for you once your work with the FBI was done and the court process was finalized. What is it like trying to get a job, a quote unquote, normal job? Were there any skills that you picked up as Sabu or from your, from your days with the FBI that you found helpful in the private sector? Yeah, man, that's that's fantastic. Thank you, Trey, for for the the awesome answer you gave us here, and then of course the questions. Great questions. I was actually curious as to the Chris's answer, so I'm glad to hear that. I'm glad you asked that question. So yes, uh, this is a great question for me because it was actually a process. Okay, you know, one day maybe if I if I ever write something down into a book or something, I'll, I'll probably kind of detail or go into detail as what that process looked like, but it was not easy. Um, you know, it, it wasn't supposed to be easy anyway, right? Part of me coming back into society after dealing with the court case, dealing with with uh, MCC and that whole experience was the rehab portion and coming back into society and being, a, uh, um, being, being someone that was a part of the society rather than being an outcast or being an outlier, right? So I, one of the lessons that I learned um, is, or I had to learn during that process, was really understanding the industry where it was at that moment, um, understanding who I would be interacting with, like whether I'm getting hired by a company or I'm dealing with clients. Um, and then of course, putting their concerns at ease. As you can imagine, when I first started promoting myself as a security researcher and, and a practitioner and so on, a consultant, folks were a bit hesitant in the beginning because my story was very fresh in the news and people saw my goofy face all over the newspapers, okay? So folks are very cautious as to how they dealt with me and how they worked with me and how they communicated with me. It wasn't until I started proving myself to folks and networking, just like Chris has said, networking is extremely, it's extremely important. As for what skills I picked up, well, obviously the hacking skills, the researching, thinking outside the box came from my black hat days, 100%. That includes things like social engineering. That includes things like looking at mis for misconfiguration issues, um, looking at Looking at engagements like attack paths or making attack paths a very important part of the engagement whenever I'm doing a penetration test. Clients now, and I'm seeing this more and more, Chris, a, a client calls me in and like, hey, Hector, we want you to do a pen test, penetration, a penetration test. Okay, cool. I do it. If I were to give them a report with just vulnerabilities in it, they're probably not going to be happy. When I give them a report that has attack path narrative where I kind of break down, okay. 
Here's how I was able to compromise your Active Directory, and I used three different vulnerabilities or features within Microsoft, or here's how I, I exploited this vulnerability in um, WebLogic, Oracle WebLogic, or here's how I, I did X, Y, and Z. Here's some screenshots. Here are the tools that I used. Here are the commands. Here's the evidence. Here's the timestamp. Customers love that, and that's why they keep bringing me in. So I learned methodology, and I learned all those skills as a black hat. Now, when I was hanging out with Chris, the skills that I learned from Chris was interpersonal, being able to communicate with some with someone, being able to listen more, and being able to kind of you know move dependent on you know uh, 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 that conversation, right? And audience, yeah, I think you learned pretty well to how to adapt to to the yeah, audience. Exactly. You know, whether you're talking to techie people or federal prosecutors or a judge. Oh yeah. I think that that helped me because I did not have that experience before, Chris. You know, I, I most of my life I was a loner, you know, and I was like into cars and I was into like ladies and I was into all these different things. But I wasn't the most social person. But spending time with you, spending time with Jim Pastore, uh, you guys give me a reality check. There's more to life and you need to be able to co communicate properly and effectively. So I think that's one of the skills I learned during my time with uh, with Chris and his team. Oddly enough. Right. But that's that's kind of my takeaway. So the last question, uh, we, I got this today, and it was it's more of a story uh, that the, the, the listener wanted to share with us, and, and I wanted to share it with you, Hector, because uh, uh, I, I find it yeah. fascinating. So mm -hmm. Drew's a graduate student in cybersecurity. Nice. Uh, Drew, good luck, good luck with your studies. Uh, anything Hector and I can do to help you, uh, please reach out. Um, so Drew wrote, thanks for all the work you put in on the podcast as a graduate student in cybersecurity trying to break into the industry. Your podcast has been immensely helpful in learning the very important cultural aspects of cybersecurity. Uh, the industry really does uh, feel like moving to a new country and learning the language and customs. It's not just about the X's and O's, mm -hmm. if you will. Appreciate you guys. So thanks, Drew, for those kind words. Uh, and he shared with us with this. Curious if you guys have any thoughts on this robbery I saw covered by the local news and how it relate to cybersecurity best practices, despite not being a direct cyber attack. A family leaves their car at a uh, local airport, I'll leave without which one, uh, and goes on vacation. A suspect breaks into their car, which has a garage door opener inside, as well as the family's home address on the registration paperwork in the glove, block, glove, in the glove box. Suspect steals the car and drives to the home, proceeds to steal thousands and do extensive damage to their home. He then returns the car to the parking garage and walks away. Police are still looking for him. What a crazy story. The craziest part to me, Hector, is yeah. that no one has thought of this before then. Uh, <laughs> this can't be the first time someone's done this. I tell you, this is like some criminal, like mastermind level crime right here. Like this person really, uh, well, let's think about it real quick. Yeah. Do you think the guy started off this way? Right? Like I'm going to find a car with like a garage door opener and a registration and a glove box, and I'm going to do an extensive um, robbery. Or do you think it was opportunistic? Like opportunistic, he was in the parking lot, or opportunistic, he was at the house, like scoping out the house, and saw the people like carrying luggage out to the car. Or rather, it could be that. Or rather, he was going to the airport to maybe break into a car or two, maybe steal a phone or iPad or something, or a book bag, and he found a garage door opener, and then he found a registration. So, hey, wait, this is basically a front door into their home. I'm going to go that he, he went to the airport thinking he could find a car of someone who had left. Mm. I, I would guess he scoped out someone getting to the airport, 
maybe yeah. a couple kids, you know, thinking that they probably have a house, a whole family um, unit, yeah. and, and watched a bunch of bags being offloaded, um, and realized that they'd probably be gone for more than just overnight. <laughs> Why do you think he brought the car back? I, I do have a correlation here. I, I think I could correlate this to cybersecurity in a way, yeah. but I just wanted to point out that this. Even though we don't see much of uh, much of these kind of crimes take place, I'm sure that happens. But this is the first time I've seen it, like in an article form. Yeah, it reminds me of Home Alone. Remember Home Alone, where of course, yeah, the cops were basically the thieves, right? And they were scoping out, uh, casing out um, homes of, of families that were about to leave on vacation for this exact purpose, right? Well, though they were fake cops. Yeah, they were fake cops. Yeah, fake yeah, cops. not not real cops. This weren't, weren't dirty cops at Home Alone. They were fake. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. They were fake cops, pretending to be cops, and they were just casing out joints, basically. Yeah. You know, if I were to take this story and then like you know juxtapose it with like a, a real world uh, attack scenario, it would be akin to okay, maybe someone stealing some credentials, logging into a corporate network over VPN, and then living off the land. They're basically pretending to be the employee, and they're maintaining persistence by running commands that the employee probably runs or commands that they know probably won't trigger uh, uh, you know, crazy events in the sim or some other logging uh, mechanism, right, or facility. Um, living off the land is basically when you break into a system and you just, kind of, you just kind of be, right? You're not installing new software. You're not trying to exploit the system um, too much. Um, there may be some lateral movement depending on the permissions that the user you've compromised actually has. So if you if you broke into a network over an intern account, that not may may not be as useful. If you broke in through like a developer account, you may have access to you know internal uh, development repositories. And then of course you're using commands that are provided by the operating system that um you know to to kind of maintain that access. That is kind of what I see here, right? It may not be a one to one. I think it's simpler than that, Hector. I think it's simply you're, you're leaving your username and password lying around. Your username is your address in the glove box, and your password is the goddamn garage door opener. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I mean, it's like having just sitting on your desk. Hey, this is where I live, and uh, this is the key to get in. But crazy oh, yeah. story. Crazy story. This guy, if they catch him, if they catch him, it'll be interesting to hear his perspective because I, I wonder – if he's done this before, if he's done this before, that means he has a methodology. And I'm sure the cops are going to learn a lot from him, yeah. um, assuming that he cooperates, you know. But, yeah, this is interesting. And for those of you listening to this story and you're about to travel and you're about to leave your car in long-term parking at an airport, uh, you may want to reconsider what you're leaving inside that vehicle. Exactly. And home security systems, they, they might be worth the, 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 the price. So, oh yeah, you know, big shout out to home security systems. <laughs> oh man well this is a hell of a story i'll tell you so drew thanks for sharing that again feel free to reach out to us if there's anything we can help you with your studies um more than happy to, to to help so hector another great episode new episodes every thursday download subscribe wherever you get your podcast friend i've enjoyed our conversation i look forward to next week already um and i will talk to you then yeah man it's been a pleasure cheers all right cheers